at this time to the book of Colossians chapter 4. And if you need a Bible, just lift up your hand and the ushers will discreetly bring one to you so you can follow along in our Bible study tonight. If you were to board a cruise ship that was docked in San Francisco, California, and it was headed for Honolulu, Hawaii, well, first of all, you'd be blessed. But let's say that the navigation instruments in that ship were out of adjustment by just one degree. It doesn't seem like very much. It's 360 degrees in a circle, and if it's just off by one degree, that really isn't that big of a deal. No, not at the setting out. But if you were to board that ship, you would never actually reach Honolulu. You would miss it by 100 miles. And it speaks to the importance of having accurate navigation instrumentation if you're in a ship. The Apostle Paul had heard word from a man named Epaphras that the Colossian church was in danger of veering off course. Rather than remaining positioned in the person of Jesus Christ alone and centered upon him as their sufficiency and their all, they were in danger of veering off course into other areas of counterfeit spirituality. There was legalism that was creeping into the church. There was this form of mysticism or ascetic appearance of putting on this air of spirituality that was permeating and perverting the Christians there in that city. There was a form of Gnosticism or higher knowledge that was mixing with Christianity and corrupting the doctrine to the point where Paul was motivated to write to them to correct their instruments, to remind them that Jesus Christ is not only the main thing when it comes to Christian living or church existence or spiritual health, but that Jesus Christ is the whole thing. It's not Jesus plus some works and rules and laws. It's not Jesus plus some you know, behavioral trends and patterns or spiritual disciplines. It's Jesus and Jesus alone that we are one in the person of Christ. And so Paul writes the Colossian church to remind them. Now, in our last study, when we looked at chapter 3, Paul gave to us in that chapter a, a whole list of things, ways that we are to order our lives that will best serve our position in Christ and our destination in heaven. He talked about the choices that we make concerning our affections, where we place our affection and our treasure ultimately, whether it's on earth or in heaven. He talked to us about our apparel, whether we're going to put on the old man, which is corrupt according to the lusts of this life, or put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. He talked to us about the direction that our lives take and how to discern God's will and God's leading as he, like a shepherd, takes us by the hand and walks us through this life. And then he talked to us about the relationships. We left off at the end of chapter 3 talking about the relationships that we have in this world. Husbands and wives, children and parents, and masters or bosses and employees. And what we saw as we discovered there is that God has ordained a role for us to play and to fill in the relationships that we have on earth that is specifically designed by him to cause us to have to seek him continually. It's not easy to be a husband or a wife, is it? It's not easy to be a father or to be in submission to one. It's not easy to be a boss or an employee. And God purposely put us in these things, not to torture us, but because it would cause us to look up. It would cause us to seek him, to draw from him, and to receive from him in a way wherein we would know him closer through the affairs of this life. And so, in light of that, 
we pick up in chapter 4, verse 2, with a very fitting word. In light of the fact that our relationships are going to cause us to pray, Paul tells us to continue to pray. In chapter 4, verse 2, he says, continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving. He says, continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving. I believe that our success or our failure in any area of life for, for the child of God is going to either prosper or fail dependent upon the strength of our connection to the Lord. How close we are abiding in his presence, in his love, in his counsel, in his word, and in prayer, ultimately, you could sum that up to be. In John chapter 15, verse 5, Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. If we abide in him, then just like a branch that is abiding in the vine attached to the source of nourishment, we will flourish. But if we are broken in that connection, or if we are not drawing from the Lord, then we will also wither. It's amazing. I I cut down a lot of trees. I mean, it seems like I always have my chainsaw running, always cutting down trees, whether it's for firewood or for a plethora of other reasons that you would not understand, you know. And, and one of the things that always amazes me is that when you fell a tree, it doesn't take long for the leaves to wither. It's almost immediate. You know, you'll, you'll cut down the tree and, and, you know, you'll step back for a minute and thank God that you're still alive, you know, as you, the, you know, the thing goes down and, and, and then, you know, you'll, you know, take a drink of water, refuel your chainsaw and, and you turn around and the leaves are already curling at the tips and they're all hanging downward and you can see that the beginning of death has already happened. As soon as they're cut off from the source, I mean, as far up the tree as they might be, As far from the source, you might say, as they might be, they wither almost instantly. And the same thing is true for the child of God. That the person that's been placed in Christ and that draws life from Christ, that the moment we become separated through prayerlessness, our lives begin to wither. But there is a difference between us and the tree. With the tree, it's perceptible almost immediately, visibly. But with you and I, it's imperceptible for a while. You can get on for a while or continue walking or continue living your life for a while in a state of prayerlessness or broken fellowship, not in connection with the Lord. And the withering is happening. Things are taking place. But yet it goes unnoticed and you can almost become calloused and you can get used to living that way. I came across this excerpt that I'll share with you. It says, God gave us hunger pains and made food pleasant to the taste. Otherwise, we would not eat. God gave us relational drives and pleasure when we come together maritally. Otherwise, we wouldn't relate. God made the body so that it would physically fatigue and malfunction when overworked. Otherwise, we would not rest. Yet there is no drive to pray. When men through lack of prayer fail to commune with God, their leaf begins to wither, their spiritual strength begins to wane, and their work becomes frail and powerless. Yet because there is no physical indication and no express pleasure in the act, prayerlessness persists and prevails, and God in patience waits. And there's a lot of truth in that. Because there's no express pleasure perhaps in the act of praying or drawing close and seeking the Lord and there's no drive in us physically that pushes us to that brink although tragedy and trouble does have an effect in that direction doesn't it but yet because of it oftentimes we can learn to live prayerless lives and that's a dangerous place to be I often warn my kids don't get used to living or accustomed to living apart from prayer Because you can do it for a while, but there's things happening inside, damage being done imperceptibly. Paul says to them, he says, continue in prayer. And then he asks them to pray for him. Verse 3, he says, with all, praying also for us. So he asks 
Please make it a part of your prayer time, a part of your prayer discipline, that you're not just praying for you. That it isn't just your needs and your thing and your concerns and your hurts and your difficulties and all that you're lifting and giving to the Lord, but that you're also remembering other people in your prayers. Intercession, it's called scripturally. It's the act of praying for other people. And it's a powerful and necessary thing that we do, that we don't just pray for ourselves, but that we're in the habit of praying for others as well. Now, you, like me, may struggle with this concept. I don't know if you're like me, but if you are, then you struggle with this. If God is ultimately omnipotent and sovereign, meaning that he's all-powerful and all-knowing, and he's omniscient, he sees the end from the beginning, then what part does my prayer play in things? If God ultimately knows and his will will be done, then what part does my prayer play? And I don't have an answer for you. I don't know, but I do know this. It does. Because the Bible tells us that we're to pray. And somewhere, and I don't know where, our prayer meets with the sovereign power of Almighty God and makes a difference in the way things happen on planet Earth. We see it throughout Scripture. In Job chapter 42, verse 10, God speaks, or the Bible says, that, and the Lord turned again the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. That there was something that happened there that Job's praying unlocked the turning of his captivity. We read in Genesis of how the intercession of Abraham somehow played a role in the deliverance of Lot from Sodom. It was a pivotal part of what was going on there. It was Abraham's time of intercession there in Genesis chapter 18. We read about the four friends that broke open the roof of the house where Jesus was sitting and they lowered their friend who was sick of the palsy in his bed down into the place of the house where Jesus was sitting. And it says that when he saw their faith, that is the faith of the four friends, he said to the sick of the palsy, take up your bed. Or, you know, he said some other things. That's not important. Different Bible study. But but we see how prayer, and specifically praying for other people, whether it's Job praying for his friends, Abraham praying for Lot, the four friends bringing their sick friend to Christ, how our intercession makes a difference in how God works in the world. I feel it. I know that many of you pray for me. I know that my wife prays for me. And I feel it and recognize the, 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 the effect that that prayer has on me in an inexplicable way. But it makes a difference. And Paul asks them, he says, please, would you pray for me? Would you put me on your list, an intercession for me? And then I'm amazed by what he asks them to pray for. Wait, don't look yet. If you were going to ask a group of people to pray for you and you were going to put it into one request, not like a list of things, but one thing, the most important thing, what is it that you would pray for? Lord, please, my kids. Lord, please, my job. Lord, please. You you know, and we, we would have our things, the things that burden us, the things that tug on us. Flip it around. If you were the Apostle Paul and you could put on his shoes and you could assimilate into his role for a moment and you were going to guess what it is that Paul was going to pray for, not knowing what it says in the text, what would you think perhaps Paul would pray for or ask them to pray for? Please, no more whips. Five times is enough. My back is scarred and bloodied and I don't want to be whipped anymore. Pray that they don't whip me. This prison is cold and dark and damp, and I would love to be out of this prison. Pray for deliverance for me. I I would love it if, you know, and and you could just imagine the things. Shipwrecks are no fun. I do not want to go through that again. A night in the day in the deep. Just pray that there would just be a season of peace in this providence or whatever. Amazing, right? Well, what does Paul pray for? He says, with all praying also for us that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in bonds, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Wait, wait, Paul. Did you just pray for an open door to speak about the Lord? Because, Paul, I would never, ever have thought that that would be the thing that you would ask. That's all you do. 
You follow Paul's life in the book of Acts and you see him, you read him. And and Paul was a one-string guitar. All he spoke about was the mystery of Christ. Everywhere he went, everything he did was Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. If he went into a village, he found the synagogue and he preached Jesus. If he ran into someone by a river, he would preach Jesus. If he was in prison and chained to a guard, he would preach Jesus to the guard. It's all Paul ever preached about or taught. That's all he was. It was just Jesus. That's it. So why is Paul praying that God would open up a door of utterance, that he would speak forth the mystery of Christ and make it manifest as he ought to speak? Here's why. Because Paul knew that unless the Spirit of God makes a way for the word to open up and come forth, and then unless the Spirit of God directs the content of the conversation, and then the Spirit of God convicts the person who's being spoken to, then all of the speech and all of the effort is in frustration, it's fruitless, and it's vain. That it's absolutely vital not just to speak, not just to get it out there, but that our speech is directed by the Spirit through the opening of a door, a directing of the conversation and the words, and then a conviction that can come only from God upon the person that's hearing or receiving the testimony of Christ. There's two different ways perhaps you've experienced sharing the gospel of Christ, speaking about the things of God with others. And I'm speaking from my own experience, is that there are times when I go into a a, a situation where, where I am completely fearful. I know, I know I need to talk about the Lord. Lord, please open the door. I know I need to talk about you. This person, they need you. Lord, please, you know, make it. And then, and then the time comes and you're there and there's a moment of silence and, and, and now the opportunity comes and you say, you know, hey, so have you thought anything about eternal matters lately? And your heart starts beating fast. And, and you're like, okay, here we go, here we go, here we go, here we go, here we go. And, and then they go, oh, and, and you sense, like you watch their shoulders drop and their heads shake a little bit, and they're like, oh, here we go, you know? And, 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 you're, and you're like, oh, I just want to talk to you. And, and you start going, and it's like there's this friction. It's like trying to turn a crankshaft with your hands, you know? The conversation is just not there. The words aren't there. It's like this frustrating interaction, and the conversation ultimately dies, and you say, ah, oh, well, at least they got some seed, you know? I sowed the seed. You know? Then, that's one experience. Then you have the other. And the other is you're just going along, you're maybe working alongside someone or you're just shooting the breeze with a neighbor or a friend. And all of a sudden, without any way that you can even later on recollect, somehow you got onto this God topic. And all of a sudden, this conversation begins to happen. And you're talking about the things of God and they're asking questions and there's an interaction taking place. And and all of a sudden, you have answers that you don't know you had. You're quoting verses that you didn't know you remembered. You're talking about concepts that you didn't even think you understood. And you're going back and forth and and, and they're listening to you. And you see that their eyes become a little bit wet. And you can sense the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives as you're just talking back and forth. And you walk away from that experience and you go... Whoa, that was awesome, you know, and you're on the phone. I just shared the Lord. It was unbelievable, you know, and see, there's a difference between the two. And that's what Paul is asking them to pray for. Not that he would just boldly blow down the doors and just plow everybody over with the word and with the gospel of Christ, but that the spirit of God would lead and open a door and then direct as the conversation interaction goes back and forth and then he would bring conviction on the person so that the sharing isn't done in vain it's not in frustration but that it's done spiritually and effectively and fruitfully and that's what paul is asking them to pray for and then he says that when that door comes that he would be bold pray for me that the door would open and pray for me that i would be bold in sharing Then he moves from prayer, talking to them about prayer and intercession and about his sharing and his desire that they would pray for that, to then talking to them about their example, the example that they would leave for others in the world. Look with me in verse 5. He says, walk in wisdom toward them that are without, redeeming the time. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how ye ought to answer every man. He takes this concept of our example 
the way that we conduct ourselves out in the world, and he breaks it into two categories. First of all, our actions, and second of all, our speech. What is our example to be towards others in our actions? He says very simply to them, he says, walk in wisdom. The word walk in the Bible always speaks of our conduct, our activity, the way that we conduct ourselves. And he says that we're to walk in wisdom towards them that are without. The word wisdom means knowing what to do with the knowledge that you have. That's what wisdom is. It's knowing what to do with the knowledge that you have. And he says that we're to walk or our actions are to be conducted in wisdom. Well, what is the knowledge that we have that we're to apply this wisdom to? And here's what it is. Because he's speaking towards those that are without, unbelievers, those that don't know Jesus Christ. The knowledge is that they're watching you and I. We know that. You know that, don't you? They're watching your life and they're watching my life. And so walk in wisdom. Conduct yourselves in a way that is in accordance with the fact that you know people are watching your lives. The world is watching Christians. Did you know that? There are thousands of domestic violence calls put into emergency numbers countrywide every day. And you don't hear about any of them until it happens at Creflo Dollar's house. (laughs) And then, oh boy, you're going to hear it, boy, because here's a guy with a mega church and with all these issues and controversies and everything. And he's a Christian and carries a Bible and preaches Christ. And hey, the police were at his house because he had an altercation with his daughter. Because the world is watching. There's thousands of people that go blotto on someone and just lose their cool because of a situation. But when it happens to Joel Olstein's wife on an airplane, the whole world is going to hear about it because, hey, a Christian blew their witness. A Christian who preaches Christ dropped the ball. And so everyone's going to hear about it. Remember that guy who made the video about the guy Kony in, in, uh, in Uganda, you know, and, and he, he was a Bible-toting Christian and he flipped his lid and they found him naked in the streets of California somewhere. Oh boy, were they quick to point out, hey, he was a Bible-believing Christian, you know, man. Because why? Because the world is watching. They're watching you and I. Now, some of the people that are watching your life and my life, knowing that we are believers, some of those people are watching because they want us to fail. They want to see us fail and they can't wait to put it upon us when we do. But believe it or not, there are other people that are watching your life and my life hoping that we will succeed. Because they know that they're lost. They know that they don't have the answer. They know that they, 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 they're, they're struggling, they're drowning, but they've fallen for everything that's ever come down the pike and they're not going to jump right into the Jesus thing. And so what they're doing is they're watching your life. They're watching how you handle stress. They're watching how you handle it when people insult you or when trouble comes your way. They're watching the way you handle financial difficulty and problems. They're watching the way you handle marriage and marriage problems. Psycho family members. They're watching the way you handle sickness, the way you handle temptation. They're observing every inch of your life that they can get their eyes upon, not necessarily because they're critical of you, but because they're hoping that there's something in what you're saying or what you're believing that they will be able to to grab a hold of and see that it works. They need to see that it works. And sometimes the most powerful evangelistic tool that you and I possess is plain old time. Time. Time for people to observe and see our lives and taste the fruit of Christ working in us and then come to a point where they would make a decision for themselves. And thus Paul says that we're to redeem the time. Walk in wisdom toward them that are without, redeeming the time. I think it was the Billy Graham organization that published a study. After interviewing several thousands of people that had come to Christ through their crusade, they came to the conclusion that most people have at least seven points of contact with Christianity before they make a decision for Christ. Which means that they either hear a word about him in a conversation or sit in a church and hear a message and 
you know, receive an invitation or just hear an invitation. Seven times they come in contact before they come to the point where they make a decision. And what Paul is exhorting us, encouraging us, is make the most of the point of contact that someone has with you. Walk in wisdom towards them that are without. I had that in my life. I went to a secular high school and grew up in a, you know, very non-Christian environment, you know, and I was a non-Christian person. And, 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 you know, I did know who the Christians were. And there was one Christian out of all the professing believers that went to my school, a man, by, a, 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 he was a kid then, he's a man now, by the name of Kurt Griffin. And Kurt Griffin was a man who lived the Christian life. And I saw it, and I could not excuse Christianity by watching his life. I could look at any of the other people that said they were Christians, and I could say, see, they're sleeping with that person. See, look where they are on Friday night. See, look what they're doing, but not Kurt. He was a real Christian. He loved Jesus. He was committed to his purposes. He wanted to be used of him, and he was a real, down-to-earth, nice guy. And that witness stuck with me. Till four years later when I got saved. And even to this day, I look back and Kurt Griffin was a man who walked in wisdom. And that's what Paul is saying. In your actions, in your walk, understand people are watching you. So conduct your lives in such a way. Part two of our example is our speech. He says, let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how ye ought to answer every man. Grace and salt are the words that he uses to describe the type of speech we're to have towards those that are without. In John chapter 1, probably the most angelic view of Christ is given to us there. John's description of Jesus in John chapter 1, and he uses these words. He says, in him was life. If I were to sum up Christ in one word, to take everything about him, the way he was, and the things he said, and what he was about and lived for, and I were to put it into one word, it would be life. In him was life. And that life was the light of men. And then a few verses later, he draws a contrast between Moses, who brought forth the law, and Jesus Christ. And it says of Christ that he was full of grace and truth. So the words to describe Christ were life, grace and truth and that encapsulated john's angelic view of who jesus was there in john chapter one now the contrast to grace is always law paul is not saying let your speech be with law unfortunately that oftentimes is the way that christians speak isn't it you shouldn't be doing that you know the lord wouldn't approve of that lifestyle or that behavior you know if you want to go to heaven then you better And there's a whole lot of law in our speech, but that's not the kind of speech Paul is telling us to have. He's saying, let there be grace in your speech. Grace is filled with love, acceptance, and forgiveness. That's what grace is. And we are called, Christians, not to be police for the Lord, but paramedics. This world's broken. The people in it are broken. Everything about this world is corrupted, and it's spiraling out of control. And one by one, people are just being destroyed, and lives are being ravished. And God has given us this ministry of grace, the forgiveness that we've received by the blood of Christ. That God accepted us where we are, for what we are, and he says, I'll take you as you are, and I will work in your life from the very inside. And he says, now give that away to others. Not your speech being Shrouded with law, but being seasoned with grace. Salty. Have salt in your speech. Well, what is salt? What does salt do? Salt does, well, salt does probably a thousand things. But the three main things that come to my mind is that salt improves flavor and brings out taste. It it, it makes people like something a little bit more. Salt also causes cravings. You know why Lay's Potato Chips has that slogan, no one can eat, just one? Take the salt out and you can eat just one. (laughs) But it's the salt people crave, you know, that you get that salt and you're like, oh, I want more. It's just, ah, something about it that creates a craving. And then number three, it creates thirst. A desire for something that will satisfy. And that is found in Christ. He's the living water, isn't he? And we're to have speech that is seasoned with salt. We're to make things taste better. 
That when people hear us speak, when they're around us, they want to be around us. That there's something there, that there's a flavor, there's something about you. The way that you speak, the way that you are, I'm attracted to it. It should create a craving for people to want to talk to you more. Maybe not even about the things of God, but they want to be around you because there's something so flavorful, so addictive about your personality, about your person, about Christ in you. And then it should make them thirsty. So what is it? I, I, I hear, we talk, we share, we're friends. You're, you, you, you show me the love of Christ. What is it that you have that I don't? And it's an experience of drawing forth thirst. He says, let your speech do that in people's lives. Let it be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how ye ought to answer every man. So, in our example towards unbelievers, in our actions, Paul says, walk in wisdom. And in our speech, we're to speak with grace, kindness, love, acceptance, and forgiveness. Well, he moves from our example now to talking to us about his companions. If you look with me in verse 7. He says, all my state shall Tychicus declare unto you, who is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord, whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose that he may know your estate and comfort your hearts. He talks to us about one of his traveling companions, a man that he leaned heavily upon, this man whose name was Tychicus. He's first mentioned in the book of Acts, chapter 20, verse 4, when Paul was leaving the city of Ephesus after spending a period of two years there. It was one of the longest stays that Paul ever had in a single city there in Ephesus. And most likely, this man Tychicus was from Ephesus. He was someone who had gotten saved in Paul's ministry there in the city of Ephesus. And now he was a man that Paul had recognized. He had a particular gifting, a particular, you know, flavor. There was something about him that Paul said, now I want you to come with me. And Tychicus is seen leaving Ephesus with Paul as Paul's about to cross over the Aegean Sea and go back into Macedonia now uh, again. And, and, and we understand from seeing him in the scripture that Tychicus was most likely a very gifted orator. He had an ability to communicate. Oftentimes, when Paul would write a letter, he would send it with Tychicus. Tychicus was one of Paul's messengers. And I believe that Paul would send Tychicus because Tychicus would have a way of being able to just communicate the things that Paul was seeking to share and give commentary to Paul's epistles in a way that would make sense and that Paul could trust it was, it was going to be the right message. And he knew that he had that kind of a man in this man, Tychicus. And so he's sending him now, uh, you know, from Rome to Colossae to deliver this epistle uh, to them. And he gives him this endorsement there in verse 7. He says three things about him that if Paul the Apostle says these things about you, boy, you're on your way. He says that he's a beloved brother. And he's a faithful minister. And he's a fellow servant in the Lord. And that's an incredible endorsement to receive from the Apostle Paul. And then he talks to us about Onesimus. He says, with Onesimus, in verse 9, a faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you? They shall make known unto you all things which are done here. Now, this Onesimus has a very interesting story. He was actually a slave that was from Colossae, the city to whom Paul is addressing. He was a slave belonging to a man whose name was Philemon, who happened to be a Christian established in the work that was taking place there in the city. Well, Onesimus, the slave of Philemon, runs away from home. He's a you know, AWOL. He's a dejector. He leaves the place of his service as a servant of Philemon, and he runs away to the city of Rome, which is 1,300 miles from Colossae. That's a long way. You've got to cross a couple of seas. You've got to cross the Aegean Sea and then the Mediterranean to get over to Italy, and then it's on the, Rome is on the far side, you know, the west side there, you know, is that right? Yeah, west. The west side. So he, he, he goes all the way from Colossae to Rome. And once he gets into Rome, he gets himself into a little bit of trouble. And he ends up in jail. 
And guess who he just so happens to be a cellmate of? The Apostle Paul. So Paul leads this young man, Onesimus, to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and spends some time with him and then says, hey, listen, Oni, you got to go back. It isn't right. Maybe slavery isn't right, but what you did isn't right, and you need to go back, and I've got something I want you to do, Paul says. I want you to bring this letter to Philemon. And if you read the book of Philemon, which is right there after the book of Titus, right before the book of Hebrews, you can read the letter that Paul gave to Onesimus to take back to Philemon. And what you discover is that Paul led Philemon to Christ as well. And so you see this incredible orchestration of God's providence in the saving of this young man, Onesimus. And now Paul is sending Onesimus with Tychicus back to Colossae to deliver the letter and to strengthen the church there and to bring them word of what's going on in Rome. Then in verse 10, he talks about Aristarchus. He says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, saluteth you. Now, Aristarchus is another one that was a travel companion of Paul. He's mentioned there again in Acts chapter 20, verse 4, when it talks about the people that were traveling with Paul. He was from the city of Thessalonica, which is on the western side of the Aegean Sea. It's in Europe, you know, that, and he picked up uh, Aristarchus while he was there. And Aristarchus was with Paul for a very long time. When you get to Acts chapter 27, where uh, Paul is shipwrecked, and you get that great saga about them being lost out at the sea, and it's a great story. Aristarchus was there with Paul at that time, when he was on his way to Rome. He's not with Paul at the end of his life. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, when Paul is talking about those final things right before he goes to heaven. Aristarchus, we don't know where he was, but he was with Paul for a very long time, a very trusted and faithful companion. And then he says, and Marcus, sister's son to Barnabas, that is the nephew of Barnabas, touching whom you received commandments, if he come unto you, receive him. He brings up Marcus. Now this Marcus is also called John Mark. And it's the same man who authored the Gospel of Mark. You know the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is the Marcus that Paul is talking. And he also has a very interesting story. He was there in Antioch in Acts chapter 13 where Paul got his official start. Paul launched in his missionary journeys from the city of Antioch. And it tells us there in Acts chapter 13 verse 5 that Mark, John Mark, this same Mark, went with Paul and Barnabas as their helper. He he went to carry the bags or just to offer support or to give help and aid where it was needed. He went with them wanting to be in in the ministry, wanting to be a part of the mission that Paul and Barnabas were going on. The problem was is that it was a little bit more difficult than he had at first thought. And so by verse 13, which is only eight verses after he began, he quits. And he leaves and he goes back to Jerusalem. And in doing that, he made life difficult for Paul and Barnabas. They had gotten used to whatever it was that he was doing. And he had become a vital part of what their ministry was. And by leaving them in that precarious situation, they had, he had made the ministry more difficult. And so here's what happened. A few years later, when Paul and Barnabas are about to go on mission again, Barnabas says, I'm going to go get John Mark and we'll pack our bags. And Paul says, no, he ain't coming. He abandoned the work last time and he put us in a rough place. He's not coming. And what happened, what ensued from that discussion is probably the greatest conflict that is talked about in the early church. And it caused probably one of the greatest church splits that is recorded in all of the book of Acts. And it was all because John Mark quit in a precarious time in the ministry. And he failed. And Paul said, no, I don't want John Mark with us. Well, years later, now we see John Mark again. And Paul is saying, if he comes to you, I want you to receive him, accept him, embrace him. He has a message, he has a ministry, he's fruitful. In fact, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, the end of Paul's life, of all of the people Paul could pull from to use 
at that season. And to give an endorsement and a plug to, he chooses John Mark. He says, if you see Mark, send him, for he is profitable to me in the ministry. We see John Mark. He failed early on, but he was restored and used greatly later. And maybe someone here needs to hear that. Perhaps you failed some point in your life or in your ministry and you think, well, God can never really use me or there can never really be a productiveness to my Christianity because of some failure that I've had along the way. Mark gives us hope because he's listed there with Paul, endorsed as a companion, a fellow laborer unto the kingdom of God. He moves on and he talks about justice in verse 11. He says, and Jesus, which is called justice. Now, this was a man who was from Corinth. And it tells us there that he was a devout Jew and that his house was connected to the synagogue. And he spent a year and a half listening to and growing under the teachings of the Apostle Paul. And now he's a travel companion with Paul. And so this man, Justice, and then he says, who are of the circumcision, meaning that they are Jews. These only are my fellow laborers unto the kingdom of God, he says, which have been a comfort unto me then in verse 12 he talks to them about their pastor epaphras was the pastor of the church in Colossae. he says epaphras who is one of you a servant of christ saluteth you always laboring fervently for you in prayers that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of god for i bear him record that he hath a great zeal for you and for them that are in Laodicea, and them in Hierapolis. Epaphras is first mentioned in Colossians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. He says, concerning the gospel that the Colossians had received, that they had learned it from Epaphras, their servant, who had also declared unto Paul their love in the Spirit. So Epaphras was the man who founded the church in Colossae. It wasn't founded by the Apostle Paul. It was founded by Epaphras. And then it was Epaphras who left Colossae and came to Rome to talk to Paul about the problems that they were facing there in Colossae and to receive instruction and mentoring from him. And so Paul is talking about their pastor. And now this man Epaphras is with Paul. Notice that Paul is not sending him back. He's sending Tychicus and he's sending Onesimus, but he's not sending Epaphras. And perhaps Epaphras said, you know what, I have this opportunity. I'm 1,300 miles from home here in Rome with Paul, and I'm going to stay for a little while and learn a couple things. I might make that choice too, if I had the, the option, you know, to spend some time with Paul. And so Epaphras, he's staying with Paul there in the prison. And then Paul talks about Epaphras, and he gives to them and also to us Three characteristics of an excellent pastor. If you want to see what an excellent pastor is in Scripture, look at this man, Epaphras. It tells us, first of all there, that he is a servant of Christ. A good pastor is always going to be a servant of Christ. You say, doesn't that go without saying? I mean, isn't pastor and servant of Christ synonymous? Aren't they one? No, 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 not necessarily. There are many pastors that are servants of church membership roles there's many pastors that are servants of a paycheck or a pay scale many pastors that are servants of denomination boards that issue decrees and hand out assignments and all that kind of thing there are some pastors that are servants of the accolades or the privilege that's involved in being in the ministry and they serve that that's why they're in it or for many other reasons but if you want a good pastor a servant of Christ. If a pastor is truly a servant of Christ and his motivation, his drive, and his desire is to see that Jesus Christ be magnified in the church and then born into the lives of the people, that pastor is going to have the right perspective. And every other area that brings forth health in a church is going to grow automatically out of that. You want a pastor that is a servant of Jesus Christ. The second characteristic that he gives there is that he is powerful in prayer. He says that he is always laboring fervently for you in prayers that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. If a pastor is a person of prayer, 
then by implication, he is not a person who is leaning upon his own strength to fulfill the work of the ministry. He's not leaning upon his ability or his expertise or his experience and seeing fruit born within a congregation or a group of people. But he knows that only Jesus can do the thing that is necessary and needful in a congregation or in a life or in a ministry or in a community or in a city. It all comes from Christ. And a pastor that is prayerless doesn't understand that and is serving in their own strength. A good pastor is one who prays. And notice what he prays for. He says, laboring for you in prayers that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. That he knows that there is nothing that he can do to provide the real need that the people have. That it only comes from Christ. See, what you need, what I need, is not a pastor or a mentor or a spiritual leader. What you and I need is Jesus Christ. And if you and I are being perfected by him and led in the center of his perfect will, then we're going to be doing just fine. We don't need someone. We need the one, Jesus. And so praying for them, that they would stand in his will, perfect and complete. And then the third characteristic of a good pastor is that a good pastor is passionate for the spiritual well-being of the people in the church. Notice in verse 13, he says, For I bear him record that he hath a great zeal for you and for them that are in Laodicea and them in Hierapolis. All three of those cities, Colossae, Laodicea, and Hierapolis, were all within a certain range of each other. They were very close, very very manageable region. And this man, Epaphras, was effective in reaching and ministering to all of the Christians in these three cities. And he cared deeply about how they were doing. Think about it. Well, what did it take to travel 1,300 miles in Epaphras' day? And yet he went to Paul because he was concerned about the spiritual condition of the people there in Colossae. And he knew he needed to talk to Paul about the problems. That's great zeal, isn't it? And what kind of self is in that? It's a very selfless thing. And this man of Epaphras is a great example to us of what a good pastor is. And Paul tells them there, hey, you've got a good man in this man Epaphras. Well, in verse 14, he talks about Luke and Demas. He says, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Now, Luke, Dr. Luke, the beloved physician, joined with Paul while Paul was on his second of three missionary journeys. Just before Paul crossed from Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, into Europe, you know, Macedonia, as he crossed the Aegean Sea, in the city of Troas, that port city that's right there in the northwest corner of Southeast Asia. No, not Southeast Asia, Southwest, you know, Asia Minor there, Turkey. Right there in Troas, in Acts chapter 16, verse 10, as you're reading Acts, it says, they then did this, they then did this. And then in verse 10, it changes to, we did this, and we did that. And at that point, Dr. Luke joined with the Apostle Paul and became his personal physician. Luke wrote Acts. He wrote Luke, you know, and and he became Paul's personal physician. Paul most likely had ophthalmalia, ophthalmalia, you know, a disease of the eyes. You get a hint of that when you read Galatians and, and other places. He was beaten so many times. He probably had physical complications beyond what you and I even can comprehend or begin to understand. And Luke traveled with Paul and attended to those needs that he had. He was also very intelligent. He wrote the book of Acts, such incredible detail. If you you ever look at it just from a literary standpoint and you see the things that he observed and then wrote down and the way that he said it. Same thing with the Gospel of Luke. Most people don't know this, but Luke is actually the major contributor to the New Testament. Luke wrote more of the New Testament than anybody else because Luke is the longest of the Gospels and Acts, 28 chapters, Uh, You know, he wrote a lot of the Bible. Very intelligent, very seemingly humble man, a travel companion with Paul. And then he mentions Demas. Demas is a very dark spot in the New Testament, and he is also a very bright light. We see Demas here ministering alongside Paul, working with him. 
In other places, we see him as one of Paul's men, one of Paul's guys. But there's a very haunting verse in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. And it says this, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world and is departed into Thessalonica. And Demas becomes for us an ensign or a symbol of someone who speaks of apostasy and abandonment. The word Demas, the name Demas means popular. And it says that he loved this world and that he departed into Thessalonica, which means victory of lies. And all of that just very simply sums up what happened to Demas. His affection, his affinity was in this world for this world. And it drew him off course. And ultimately, he abandoned the things of God because of a love for the world. And so the darkness of his story is that his name is a symbol of apostasy and abandonment. But the brightness that comes from it is that it serves for us as an eternal warning, doesn't it? Beware that your affections for the things of this world don't blind you and keep you from the things that are of eternal value. It's the lesson that we learn from Demas. Well, then in verse 15, final conclusive comments and closing, he says, salute the brethren which are in Laodicea and Nymphus and the church which is in his house. The first thing that Paul tells them there is greet the churches. In my name, greet the churches that are in the area. Colossae, Hierapolis, Laodicea, the church that is in Nymphus's house there. And then in verse 16, he says, read the epistles. He says, and when this epistle is read among you, cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. Now, we don't have that epistle. It's one that is lost somewhere, uh, you know, along the way. We don't have it. They had it. Paul says, hey, read this epistle in Laodicea. Make sure you get the letter that I sent to them and that you read it there in Colossae. Spread these things around, Paul was saying. They're important. And then he gives, in verse 17, a word to them to encourage the leaders. He says, and say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which thou hast received in the Lord, that thou fulfill it. Take heed to the ministry which thou hast received in the Lord, that thou fulfill it. Now, in the letter to Philemon, we discover what that ministry was. He led a house church. There was a church that was in the house of this man, Archippus, and God had apparently called him into that position, into that ministry. And we don't know what was happening. We don't know why. But we know that there was something there where Paul felt it necessary to address this man specifically and to say, listen, take heed to the ministry that you have received from the Lord that you fulfill it. And I believe that some of us need to hear that. Is that the ministry that you serve in that place that you fill within the body of Christ. It isn't something that's been ordained of men. It isn't simply a post that is volunteer work, you know, or something that you can put on a resume. But if you're involved in some form of service or ministry, you've been put in that ministry by the Lord. A man can receive nothing, the Bible says, except it be given him from above. And Perhaps the word to you tonight is take heed to the ministry which you've received in the Lord, that thou fulfill it. Paul took ministry seriously. He he addresses himself often as an apostle of Jesus Christ, right? To Timothy, he addresses himself different. You know what he says to Timothy? He says, Paul, an apostle by the commandment of God our Savior. He looked at the ministry that he was in as not just something that he had chosen, but as something that God had ordained for his life, and he took it with seriousness. And here he spreads that word to Archippus. And then he says, the closing, the salutation by the hand of me, Paul. Remember my bonds. That's a great word to meditate on as we close this epistle, isn't it? He calls them to consider the fact that this great apostle, this man had been so used of God in such a mighty way, was in a prison in chains. And that should stir a meditation within them and also within us. Is Why would this man accept such a 
situation and yet not complain about it or try to wiggle out of it or in some way kick against it? Why? Who was he in chains for? What was the purpose of those chains? Did he deserve to be in them? And perhaps even there was a hint of, hey guys, pray for me, that maybe God would let me out. But he says, remember my bonds. And then he finishes the epistle the best way any letter can be finished. He says, grace be with you. Amen. Now, I know that there are some of you that are sitting here tonight, and you would never say this, but you're thinking to yourself, why spend so much time talking about the people that traveled with Paul? I mean, there's over a hundred of these people that we read about in Acts and in the epistles that were travel companions. Why, why take the time to go and develop each character and talk about the situation that they you know, served in and all the rest? Why would we do that? I believe that we, maybe it's a worldwide thing, maybe it's a human thing, maybe it's an American thing, but we've been trained to basically separate people into two categories. The who's who... And the who's he? And, and, and unless someone has done something that's noteworthy, unless they're famous for something, unless they're rich or that they, they've accomplished or done something heroic, you know, those are the who's who's. Paul's a who's who. Peter's a who's who. But the rest of these guys, they're a who's he. You know, who's Epaphras? Who's Demas? You know, who are these guys? You know, what, what difference do they make in the grand scheme of things? Listen, in the kingdom of God, there is no such thing as a who's he. Every person that his name is in the Lamb's book of life is significant in the kingdom of God on earth. And listen, you, if your name is in his book, you are known in heaven right now already. Your life is significant. There's no such thing as a who's he. In 1854, there was a 17-year-old man who worked in a shoe shop outside of Boston. His parents had made him go to church throughout his youth, but he had reached an age where he said, this God thing's not for me. And he had a Sunday school teacher whose name was Edward Kimball. And Edward Kimball one day felt led to go to the shoe store and talk to this young man, engage him in a conversation. And so he went there on the lunch hour and he went into the basement of the shoe shop with this young man and shared with him from his heart about the things of God. And the result of that conversation is that the young man gave his life to Jesus Christ. The young man's name was D.L. Moody. You ever heard of D.L. Moody, Dwight Lyman Moody? Wait, the story goes on. D.L. Moody became a famous evangelist and preacher. He influenced many in the world. And one of those that he heavily influenced and turned the course of their ministry was a British preacher by the name of F.B. Meyer. Perhaps you've heard of him. F.B. Meyer led a man to Christ whose name was J. Wilbur Chapman, who was also mightily used of God. J. Wilbur Chapman led a man to the Lord whose name was Billy Sunday. Perhaps you've heard of him, famous evangelist. Billy Sunday led a man to Christ whose name was Mordecai Ham. And Mordecai Ham led a young man to Christ whose name was Billy Graham. You ever heard of him? Listen. There's no such thing as a who's he in the kingdom of God. All of the fruit of D.L. Moody, of F.B. Meyer, of J. Wilbur Chapman, of Billy Sunday, of Mordecai Ham, of Billy Graham, all goes back to a nameless, faceless Sunday school named Edward Kimball, who on a venture went and talked to a young man because it was on his heart to share the gospel. And somewhere in heaven, there is a man named Edward Kimball walking around. Let me tell you something. There is no one in heaven saying, who's he? Because all of the fruit of every ministry that came after is accredited to his account. Now, we read books, don't we, about Moody and, ooh, Billy Graham's biography. And we, we read books. Have you ever read a book about Edward Kimball? No, you haven't. Why? Because he, he's a who's he. No, no, there is no who's he. Because the insignificant or seemingly insignificant things that take place in the lives of God's people resound throughout the waves of eternity and they make a difference forever. I think of this young woman, Miriam. She followed her young baby brother, Moses, as he was placed in the river and he sailed down there that day and, and she followed that little tiny 
boat that he was laid in to the place where Pharaoh's daughter took him up. And in an insignificant moment, an insignificant act, she just said, hey, I know someone who could nurse that child for you. And she brought the child Moses right back to his mother where he spent the first few perhaps years of his life hearing the word in his ear, the Lord is one. The Lord is one. God has a plan for your life. You're not a mistake. God's going to do something. But we don't think of Miriam in that light. She was just an insignificant player. She was nothing. I think of this woman, Ruth, who just said, hey, I'm going to go with you, Naomi. I I don't want to stay here. I'm going to come back to Bethlehem. I know I'm a Moabite. I know I have no place there, but I'm just going to come with you. Insignificant decision. I'm just, hey, it's travel plans. It's life plans. I'm just going to come with you. This woman, Ruth, became the great-grandmother of King David. She's listed in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. She goes down in the chronicles of history. There's no such thing as a who's he. Someone who's insignificant. I think of a nameless, faceless young man who just said, here, Jesus, take my lunch. A few loaves and a few fish. It doesn't really amount to much. I don't know what you can do with it. Little did he know that that insignificant act of nothing that was never going to produce any greatness would produce for him eternal fame. How many people came to Christ that day because they saw the miracle that Jesus did? How many have come to Christ since then because they've heard the account of what Jesus did in those, the, that text and saw what he did? There's no such thing as a who's he in the kingdom of God. I think of this man Epaphras. He heard a word. Perhaps it was in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. We don't know. But this man Epaphras, he heard a word. He felt a call. You know, I'm going there. I'm going to go to Colossae, and I'm just going to see what God does. And this insignificant man, among thousands of other earthly insignificant men, went to a city and started a church. And the result of that church was three churches, perhaps thousands of churches. It's an epistle that you and I are holding right now that we've studied, we've looked at, we've learned from. We've seen something of the person and work of Christ that we never would have known otherwise because of an insignificant act of a man Epaphras just going to the city. What about you? Insignificant, nameless, faceless, little old you. What insignificant act is God going to take in your life? And do something with it that you will never understand and you'll never see the result of in your lifetime. But that a thousand years from now, you're in heaven and you see multiplied millions of things that were done because of the place that you filled in God's purposes on this planet. God called you by name. He knows the number of hairs that are on your head. He ordained every one of your days before they were ever lived out. And he knows everything about you. And you're not insignificant in the kingdom of God. He saved you on purpose. He called you with a holy calling. He has reserved and established an inheritance for you that it's incorruptible, undefiled. It's in heaven. It's secured forever. You're not insignificant. And Paul would say in light of this to us tonight, he would say, listen, walk in wisdom. Continue in prayer. Stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. Fulfill the ministry that he has called you unto. And above all, grace. 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 Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your wonderful love. We thank you for the mercy that you've extended to us, that you've called us your sons and daughters, that you've given us a hope and a calling above and beyond anything we could ask, think, or imagine. And tonight, Lord, this church, this building, this house was filled with insignificant nothings concerning earth. But we know that in heaven, Lord, what you can do with a conversation we might have with a Sunday school student, it blows our mind. And I know I don't speak for myself, Lord, but I pray that you would take up my life afresh. That you would do with us, Lord, that which brings you glory and pleasure. That which will benefit eternity. And that you would take our lives and use them for all that they are. And I pray that you would write the word that we've heard as we've gone through Colossians and put it in our heart forever that we are in Christ. 
the mystery of godliness, that Christ is in us. That we're complete in him. And we ask, Lord, that you would bear much fruit. Father, I pray for each person here, that wherever they're at, whether perhaps they've just recently made a profession of faith and come to you, Lord, that right now you would establish your residence, your house within them. That you would use their lives, that you'd give them calling and purpose, anointing. I pray for those that have walked with you for years, that perhaps even their love has grown a little bit cold. Lord, I pray that you would reignite that fire. That you would give them the passion and the zeal for you that they had at the beginning, and that their lives, Lord, would be carried on the wind of your spirit. And Father, I pray for any that might be here tonight that do not yet know you personally. That this night, Lord, as your spirit has been speaking, as the eternal spirit that created all things is speaking to a puny, finite, fallen man and saying, come to me. For in me is life. Pray for any here that don't yet know you, Lord, that tonight would be the night that they would call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. And we ask that you would do your will in our church, in our families, and in our lives personally. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.